Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, everybody. This is Brandon Pember, a.k.a. Pemberton. Excuse me. I ain't know my own name. This is Brandon Pemberton, a.k.a. Sports Trap and Brand a.k.a. the maestro of the playbook, and this is Sports Trap Radio tonight, as we are every Tuesday night, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. on NGSCSports.com. we got a big-time show for you all t- tonight, and Ant Green will join me in due time. I expect him to call, and he may be you know, running a little late. You know how things go. You know He may have a family emergency, but we got a big-time show for you all tonight. We're going to recap NBA All-Star Weekend, the, you know, the Rising Stars game, the World versus the United States, the three-point shootout, the dunk contest, which turned out to be very good, the All-Star game in which Russell Westbrook, you know, was one point away from breaking Will Chamberlain's record for most points in the All-Star game, leading the West to victory. We're going to talk about that. Then we got the NBA trade, trade deadline, which is Thursday. And you know what? One of the great things about this year, as far as the All-Star game, and I think LeBron James did a great job, you know, talking up for the players. Usually they play the All-Star game Sunday. You know, they had the festivities Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They had the festivities. And then, you know, right after the All-Star game on Sunday, then back on Tuesday, they're usually playing. So, you know, I think it's a, a, a good thing that they actually have – legitimately four or five days to recover, which is honestly a real break. And then, you know, the games start back up on Thursday night. Now on the line is my super co-host, Ant Green. Ant, what's good, bro? Man, ain't nothing, man. I don't know what was going on, man. I'm trying to get in here, man. Um, but, you know, man, excited. Another day, another dollar, another sports track radio, man. Every time we get on here, and I know I told you this off the air, man, but I feel like we're just one step closer to doing what we need to do, especially after what you said on uh, Instagram about the night, man, and the weather. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely, man. I mean, it's you know, each show we get better. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Each article, you know, it's just work and work, 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 and I, hard work pay off. Like, we both know that because we've both been in positions as athletes in the past in which we know that we were talented, but we also were taught that we had to work hard to get to certain spots, work hard to be good at what we were doing. So, and it's the same thing we'll be doing right now, you know, hard work, dedication, being consistent. And, you know, at some point, you know, it's going to pay off. So I'm just thankful. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm thankful that we got the venue to do this. I'm thankful that I got a great co-host with me now that's as dedicated as I am that is as knowledgeable as I am, you know, a guy that's been in the trenches and, you know, I can go to, you know, about, you know, just being an athlete in sports and just life in general, period. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's just one of those things where you know, iron sharpens iron, man, and that's what and that's what we're gonna continue to do, and that's how that's how we're gonna do it, and that's how we're gonna continue to make, you know, sports track radio and sports rap TV something that they see across the uh, across the nation Indeed. and here across the nation. Indeed, um, you know, I was wanted to start off the show talking about the NBA All Star Weekend, and you know, it was in New York City this year, and you know. Festivities were held at the Barclays Center and held at Madison Square Garden. And, you know, us being from Philly, we know how hollow basketball is here. Like, you know what I mean? Philly's one of the top basketball cities across the country. But we also know from playing ball growing up and having the opportunity to meet guys from New York and play ball versus guys from New York City in the different boroughs, how hollow the city NBA bat you know, basketball is as far as New York City. They had the festivities there, in my opinion, and went pretty well. Um, what was your overall thoughts on how things turned out as far as All Star Weekend? Oh man, you know, I, I thought it was great, honestly, you know, and and being from Philadelphia, you know, it's hard to give New York New York any credit for anything, but you know, I felt like it was crazy, you know what I'm saying? Plus, you know, my dad's side of the family is from, you know what I'm saying, from New York. Shout out to South Bronx, Queens. Um, you know, but it was, I mean, it was it was fun, you know. And, and and the thing about it was, you know, I went to school in upstate New York at Binghamton. So, you know, to see New York get an opportunity to shine like that and then to shine was a great thing, man. I, I thought the, the NBA players, may not be as good as they were um, 20 years ago, but they are a lot more business savvy and understanding of their obligations as a whole. And I think you can see that in, in, in the festivities when you when you look at, you know, the three-point contest and the dunk contest. I mean, at, 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 every, at every event, it just looked like everybody wanted to be there and everybody was having a good time. And, and in an all in an all star situation, that's exactly what you're looking for. Yeah, I, I can't agree more because I mean, like out of all the sports, I mean, it's probably two all star games that I enjoy watching and I actually will watch. And basketball is one because I enjoy going like watching a pickup game with a bunch of 12-year-olds playing. So who wouldn't want to watch the best players in the world? You know, they play a pickup game. You know, it start off, you know, real flashy. But then at, in the second half, the end of the third quarter, going to the fourth quarter, guys is actually playing hard. And, you know, well, they try to, and they try to win. Know, one of the things, like, like before uh, you keep going, is one of the things that's interesting is you can all, you always know who the best player is, though. And I'm going to tell you how you know who the best player is. Because typically, the best player has a point to prove. And I felt like LeBron James came out with a point to prove because he was really aggressive. But that wasn't it. In the second half, you know, the the guy that is, you know, probably right on his tails or, or right in front of him for MVP this year is James Harden. And LeBron took on the task of guarding and he and, and he and he did a pretty good job on him. Uh, James Harden hit one tough shot, and then the next time he got a shot clock violation on him. So, like you said, it's one of those things where you watch the game within the game, and you see the game turn a little bit serious 
when it's winning time. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, like that game, a a lot of – I've been in this business for a long time, and I've been around opinions of people that, like Kevin Durant said, absolutely don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, I've had arguments with people as far as this game, but like you said, you know, they play around, they put on the show the first 30, 30 minutes of the game. You know what I mean? The first 36 minutes maybe of the game. But the last the last quarter and a half, the last quarter, they bear down and, you know, they try to win the game. And, you know, I really enjoy watching the game. Russell Westbrook came out early. He got hot. You know, he put on the show. He was one point away from breaking Will Chamberlain's record um, for most points in the game. Um, I mean, I had – Honestly, I had no complaints. Usually, the game you really don't won't get any complaints about. Now, the complaints will come in. The three point shot shootout is always a three point shootout, and I think this year in my lifetime, this been, it was one of the best, you know, group groups of eight of shooters that I've seen in a long time. Like I remember back in the day, it being Larry Bird and you know Dale Ellis and Craig Hodges and those guys, and you know. It's not too many real legit shooters like it was back then, but they had eight of the best shooters in the NBA, and they put on a show, and Steph Curry got hot, and he hit those 13 straight threes, which was the most threes hit straight in that contest since Craig Hodges hit 19 in a row. I think they did a, you know, they put on a shooting expedition like we wanted to see. Well, I think that's what we expected, and not only not only did they live up to it, I felt like they exceeded it. You know, just just in the fact that you could see that they all wanted to win. And of course, shooting is a little bit different than dunking because shoot is one of those things that you do all the time. Now you don't shoot may practice, but you don't practice them like you practice shoot. So there's going to be a different level of expertise when you see them doing it. So when I watch this year's three-point contest, the reason why the three-point contest was such a big deal this year was because superstars were were shooting. And any time you get the very best doing that very thing that they're identified for, it's a it's just it's just a different level. You it's a different level of excitement. There's a couple different ways that you can go in that kind of competition. So you know, and 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 it's and it's I, in my opinion, it's great for the NBA that Steph Curry won that competition, you know, it, it reminds me of, you know, Larry Bird winning that competition because you're talking about the best shooter in the league and probably the best, you know, point guard at this point right now playing in the league winning that competition. So it sets the bar of the excellence of the NBA when you see yeah, those no, kind yeah. of guys doing those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, and in my opinion, he's arguably the front runner for MVP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, I it, Listen, it, it couldn't have worked out no better for the NBA. You know, you look at, I, I mean, and especially in that three-point contest. I mean, the dunk contest was amazing, too. I mean, it's just, you know, moving on to the dunk contest, it's one of those things where everybody is so exposed to everything now. So there's not much that you just don't see anymore. Because you can go on YouTube and see the best dunkers and the best dunks, and you'll see those dunks. Whereas 
when Jordan and Dominique was coming up, it wasn't you, you wasn't able to see a guy from the rec center that could do the things that Michael Jordan could do or Dominique could do. And now you see that. But, I, man, I tell you now, even in the dunk contest, that, I mean, he made it look easy. And the dunks that he was doing were very, very difficult. Yeah, I mean, he's amazing, man. Like, we've seen it when he was in high school. We've seen it over the summer when he was in the Pro-Am dunk contest. And, you know, his first two dunks he won, but they asked him to keep on going. I mean, the crazy thing about it is he didn't even pull out the best dunks that I've ever seen him do. Like, he had – No, 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 he had more. He had, like, three or four more that, you know what I mean, nobody else in the league probably could do that he did over the summer – in the program that um, Jamal Crawford run in Seattle, I mean, he he wasn't done yet. But like you said, he made it look easy, point blank period. Like, he's a freak athlete with basketball skills on top of it. And, I mean, I wasn't surprised that he won because I seen him dunk. I seen him in dunk contests, and I looked at the other three guys, and the other three guys get dunks in games. Like, my – Mason Plumlee get dunks in games. He's a very athletic big, but he ain't a dunk contest dunker. Giannis is 6'10 with a 7'5 wingspan. I mean, he gets dunks in games. He's not really a, a, a dunk contest dunker. And Oladipo is barely over 6'3, and he has some nice stuff, but I tell people all the time, in that contest, you got to make him the first time. Oladipo, you got to, you got to. Oladipo legs went on him. You gotta make the dunks. Like at the end of the day, the most important thing to a great dunker is making the dunks the very first try that you're doing. And that's the thing I think that was just so remarkable about about Michael and and, and Dominique and those guys that they did it coming right out the shoot. Like that was the first that when when you seen them do a dunk, that was the first time they was doing that dunk. You know, and so. With with that, it, it makes it that much special. And when you watch, I mean, if you watch that though. I mean, that that the way he did the behind the back dunk, and the way that he did the Space Jam dunk, you know, on his first actual attempt at at the rim, it was just. It, it, I mean, it, it it made him amazing. It made him amazing. And I was like, I was, I was, I wasn't surprised, but I kind of went back to when. James White was in the dunk contest, and he couldn't do the dunks that everybody had already seen him do. Yeah. You know, he just couldn't. He couldn't. Listen, that stage was brighter and bigger, and everybody was watching, and he just couldn't do it. But Zach was able to make the transition effortlessly. And, it, and you know, when you when you do it so smooth, you know, the, the, the guys that really appreciate it going to appreciate it. But then just the casual fan don't get how difficult what he was doing actually was. Yeah, like James White from high school to college and even the the uh the D League dunk contest was I mean and Vince Carter is Vince Carter, but outside of Vince Carter, James White probably was the best dunker that I seen, like as far as a dunk contest dunk. It was just stuff James White did at the time that nobody else could do. Like who was doing a windmill from the foul line. Like, James White jumped from the foul line, take the ball with one hand, grab it with two, put it to the side of his head, 
and flush it. And like you said, we've seen those dunks. Like, the NBA hadn't seen them, and last year he couldn't get the daggone dunks down. Yeah, I mean, that it's that simple, you know. It's just, And, and it's, it's no different than an NBA game. There's a lot of guys that can play. There's a lot of guys that can do a lot of different things. You catch them in the rec league. The question is, can they do those things under the brightest lights against the greatest competition? And that's what Zach was able, you know, that's what Zach was able to do. To me, his four dunks is right up there with Michael Jordan, Dominique, and Vince Carter. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you, point blank period. You know what I mean? They, he, he rivals the four of those guys, man. Like, he got them things down. And, you know, the thing about Zach is, is that, listen, he might be that level of a player at one point. Because, remember, he's only 19. So yeah. those those guys were twenty one coming into the league, you know the Mike the you know Michael Jordan and and, and Dr. J like the kind that that you know Vince Carter the kind of athlete that he is like those are just his like natural young hops like those ain't his adult full working on my body doing squats and all that hops yet. It's so the I crazy think about- one more time to have a crazy four dunks. At some point, the crazy thing about it is that he can—he legitimately got a chance. Like, like you said, he hasn't filled out his body yet. So, at 22, 23, he's going to be stronger. And, he, and like you said, he may be able to jump even higher and be more powerful than he is now. I mean, to think about that, knowing what kind of athlete he is now, is just flat out amazing, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just can't believe it. I can't believe it when I see him sometimes, man. I, I just can't wait to see. I can't wait to see him as he grow into his body, man. I know he's a great dunker, but I just think he's going to be an amazing basketball player overall. I mean, you could, you could see some of the glimpses in the, in the rookie game, you know, seeing getting those dunks he was getting and then also seeing him, you know, bring the ball up the floor and also shoot shoot threes off the dribble. Yeah, he got a chance. If he if he wants to be great, he got a chance to be a great basketball player. Like in my, it's just basically with him, a guy that already got the talent, and you see the resequent skills already, being able to handle the ball, being able to shoot off the bounce, like you said. If he works hard at it, and that's what he wants to be, he'll be a great player. He'll be, uh, you know, an all star in this league, man. I, listen, I don't see any reason why he won't, but it'll be up to him whether he's Vince Carter or Kobe Bryant. Yeah, I mean, and even for him, if he can get to Vince Carter, you know, that'd be good. But he got a chance to be somewhere in between a Vince Carter, a McGrady, and a Kobe. Yeah. All right, um, I wanted to ask you one more thing before we – Left the All Star game this year, compared and compared to other years, you know, in prior years the All Star weekend started, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, and by Tuesday, guys were back and it was games being played on Tuesday. This year, they not playing games until Thursday night, and Thursday night is Thursday afternoon is also the NBA trade deadline. What's your thoughts on 
you know, the NBA actually listened to LeBron James complain about it last year and then something actually being done? Well, I, I mean, I think it's a great idea. I think that um, the game is played a little bit different. Um, if you look at the, especially in the West, you know, the up-tempo that they play with, I mean, now you see it with the Bulls trying to be a little bit more open. You see it with the Cavs trying to get up and down. Atlanta, you know, playing that way. The, um, and because they're getting up and down more, the guys are bigger, the guys are faster. So those bumps and bruises hurt a little bit more. They take a little bit more out of you. And when, I mean, you see what Greg Popovich had to do with his guys. He just started sitting guys randomly and saying, listen, if they're not going to give us a rest, we're going to make sure y'all rest in the way that we see fit to benefit our team. So to me it makes sense for you to take a little bit more time during the all-star break so that it can benefit the whole league. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's a great idea. And finally, you know what I mean? I mean, and I think for the players, having a guy like LeBron James – who's the face of the league, the greatest player in the world, for him to step out there and say that last year um, and for them to actually do something about it, I think it's a great thing for the players. The more rest, the better. I mean, like you said, it's an 82-game season. The game is played differently nowadays with the more, you know, up and down. Like, the guys' legs get tired a bit more. Back in the 80s and 90s, it was more physical play. You know what I mean? Guys may have been beat down more just by banging and hitting on each other. But like you said, nowadays, more up and down pace, guys is getting tired. And, you know, I think Popovich is an innovator. And, you know, old school guys will complain about, you know, oh, we played all the games. And I heard Oakley and Carl Malone bitching about it last week saying that they never miss games. And, I mean, I, I you know, growing up in our era – you know, when I always looked at the stats, I always looked to see who who played all 82 games. But nowadays, you know, you more you know more. You know, modern science, modern science. It's okay to sit a guy every once in a while, especially when you want to have your guys fresh and ready for the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, and that's what it. I mean, that's what it comes down to. You talking about guys going hard from September, and then asking them to be at their very best in May. Essentially, if you're going play for a championship and that's when you'll be playing and it's just I mean it's just smarter to do it that way. It is. I know guys are saying that this might be the one time that I get to see that guy play and that's part of it and I understand it as a fan but as a player I also understand how important rest is and you know I ne- I never played in the NBA and overseas the schedule is a little bit different. You might play once or twice a week but in college, I can remember my junior year, um, by the time, like, the middle of January came, I could hardly touch the backboard. My legs are so heavy. You know, and, of course, in the games, with my adrenaline running, I would be able to play at a certain level. But if you were asking me to, like, dunk or anything like that, I couldn't do none of that. And so, you know, you need, I mean, at a certain point, players need a break. I mean, that's why I am such a fan of the NFL, because I know for a fact there's no other athletes that can do what the guys in the NFL train themselves to do. 
especially the guys that stay in the NFL. The guys that go in and out the NFL, I totally understand it because your body is just not built to take that kind of punishment and then be able to perform. Like I always go back to the Jerome Bettis thing. I, I watched him on ESPN. They showed him on Monday. He couldn't hardly move. Well, he was back at practice on Wednesday. Yeah. You know, yeah. so the, the rest is – I mean, the rest is important. The rest is amazing for those athletes. So the NFL, they, you know, they did the, they did the right thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad they did it. And, and, I mean, the NBA did the right thing, and I'm glad they did it. And I, I think you'll see better basketball because of it. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I totally definitely agree with you. All right, the NBA trade trade deadline is Thursday. And, you know, I mean, I was looking all over the Internet and, you know, trying to see, you know, what the rumors were going around, what could possibly happen. And, you know, for basically the whole season, OKC has been trying to make a trade for Brooke Lopez. Um, they do have Stephen Adams. He's a young guy. He's a you know a a nice piece for them. I think you know he has a chance to be a good, solid defensive big man, rebound the shot blocker for a long time, possibly a double double guy. But they've been trying to trade for Brook Lopez all year, and you know Billy King isn't just trying to dump the salary. They actually want something in return for him. What is your opinion on the possibilities? of OKC getting get Brooke Lopez and them possibly trading, you know, Reggie Jackson and some other pieces for him? Well, I think you just got to be careful because <laughs> Brooke, Lopez is a, uh, Brooke Lopez is a great offensive player. He's not that good defensively. And when you look at the teams in the West, if you're looking at the teams in the West that you're probably going to have to beat, you're saying, all right, you want somebody that's going to be able to get up and down. That's not Brooke Lopez. And for OKC, you know, I getting Deion Waiters, I, I think, will help them in the long run. But Reggie Jackson is a – Reggie Jackson could start on a lot of teams in the NBA right now. And – I don't know if it's just one of those things where they're like, all right, let's just try to accumulate all the talent we can and then move forward from there. But it's just you got to be careful with your mix with the guys that you with the guys that you have. Because I would look at OKC and say it's more of a coaching situation than it is an actual talent situation because don't no other team have two guys as good as Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant. Okay. Period. That's the way I look. When I look at their team and I look at it, you look at Reggie Jackson, you look at Westbrook, you, you put Abaka out there, you put Adams out there, and you put Kevin Durant out there. That five is probably better than any other five in the NBA. With those just those five out there alone. So when I look at the kind of talent that they have, it's one of those things where you like, man, there is a there is a bigger issue with OKC than the talent that they have. That is not their problem. The talent is not their problem for OKC, you know. And I mean, I could see why they would be looking to let go of Adams because now what's the name is starting to emerge. You know what I'm saying? It's the player that we all assumed he was coming out of Michigan now that he's a little bit healthy. 
So maybe that's a reason why they feel like they can let go of Brooke Lopez, but I, I meant they can let go of Adams. But Adams is one of those guys, an irritator, a guy that's going to play tough, and those are the kind of things you actually need in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think, like, looking at the roster and, you know, Mitch McGarry now rounded in the shape um, mm-hmm. and him being healthy is a good thing for them. I mean, you look at him and Adams together, you know, they got some a, a nice pair of young big men. And if they were to trade for Brooke Lopez, it would take Reggie Jackson and probably one of those two players, either – Adams or Mitch McGarry. The question is, do you want to give up on one of those two guys? You know what I mean? And I, I, I mean, you can't. I, to me, you, I mean, you've already think, seen them play well. Yeah, and I think for OKC, and a lot of times, you know what I mean, we forget how quick a window or how long the window could be to win a title or how quick it could close. Does, does OKC think that their window – of winning a title is closing fast. You know what I mean? And, you know, they, they're willing to, to trade Reggie Jackson because he's going to be a free agent this offseason. And according to ESPN's Chris Broussard, people in this camp think that he's worth a max contract. You know what I mean? So it's a lot of, outside of the basketball part of it, it's a lot of, you know, you know the business aspect of it, you know, goes into it as well. I know in the playoffs, and we we know, even with the game being an up-and-down game now, at some point in the playoffs, you got to be able to score in the half court. And I think if Kevin Durant and Westbrook, we know that they can score well from the outside. You know what I mean? We know that they can come off picks and shoot. We know that they can get to the rim. But if one of them took it upon themselves to post up a bit more and, you know, run the offense through them through the post in which – they're going to get double teamed. They're going to double Westbrook because he's physically bigger and better than the guard that you're going to put on him. And Durant. Regardless of who it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Durant with his length and, you know, even with him being thin, he's not as thin as he used to be. Durant, if you put him at the mid post, if he really wants to, in the playoffs, get down there and post up, Durant should be able to score down there. Yeah, you know, typically what you see in guys is they try to use their athleticism to beat guys, and as they get older, they start to understand how easy it can be because they just figured out how to post up, you know. But it's it, it's one of those things where you, you definitely need, like, that grown man's strength in order to be able to do it, though, because that, that, is, that is a lot of pressure on your back because of the fact that you'll be turned to somebody and you'll be, um, you know, trying to back them down and back them down. They had a forearm in your back, and that, that will wear you down. So that's why younger you don't see as many younger guys doing it because it wear you down faster. And, but as you get older, you get a little bit stronger, you, you can use your body a little bit differently. So, I, you know, I don't know if either one of them are at that point yet, but – to me, Westbrook probably is more ready to do it than Kevin Durant is for, just for the simple fact that how hard it is to move somebody because you've seen his issues last year in the playoffs when they put Chris Paul on him because his his base is not strong enough. Mm-hmm. But him to just back a guy, you know, to just walk him down, get to a spot, and then turn. Kobe Bryant could do it. 
you know, Carmelo can do it. You know, Jordan could do it because of the way they built. You know, they could do it that way. LeBron can do it because of the way he built. So when you look at a Kevin Durant, it might be a little bit tougher for him than it is Westbrook because of how Westbrook is built. Yeah, I mean, then you go to the argument, and, you know, Charles Barkley talk about all the time, and him and Daryl Moore went about it. These guys that run teams and believe in analytics, they believe that the mid-range game and a post-up game is, you know, is worthless, basically. And they believe in three-point shots or basically drives to the hoop. And I'm fine with drives to the hoops, but nobody's going to sit and tell me that, you know, Charles Barkley should have took more three-point shots than he should have posted up. Or Carl Malone should have took I'm more threes than like posted up. It's simple basketball. The whole analytics thing is – it's one of those things where you look at the numbers and you can get those numbers to say exactly what you want them to. But basketball is a simple game. The team that makes the most shots the closest to the rim typically wins, period. It's not that complicated, regardless of how you say it. You can say you value the three-point shot, but on average you're talking about a team making nine or ten threes in the game. That's only 30 points. You still got to get to around another 65 points in order to win the game. If you're playing great defense and if you're playing bad defense, you got to figure out how to get another, you know, 75 points to win. So when the, the whole analytics and all that, man, it, it, it's just one of those things for other people to get involved in the game because – you don't need the analytics to tell you how good a good three-point shooter is to the spacing and all of that. That's basic yeah. basketball. You know that drives to the hole creates a situation where guys are going to have to double so that the next shot is easier. That's You don't need no computers. You don't need advanced statistics. You don't need advanced analysis to figure out those kind of things. Are you kidding me? You get on a basketball court in the park. If y'all playing the 32, by 16 and y'all about to – when y'all switch at 16, everybody already knows what the other guys are trying to do and how they're doing it. For real basketball players. So it's not like – it's just one of those things where you're like, man, listen, okay, you can make it how you want to make it, but i tell you this. You show me an a, a analytical team that's won a championship playing that way, and everybody goes back to – Oh, well, look at the Spurs. Well, the Spurs got the very best power forward to ever play. When in doubt, they can still dump it down to him to get a bucket. You still can't play Tim Duncan one-on-one all game. Yeah, I mean, and the Spurs the Spurs run of five titles wasn't never based on analytics. Like, no. I mean, that was, that, was, that was something that they, you know, added to the mix. But you're not going to sit and tell me that Greg Popovich know basketball because of analytics. No, he know basketball because he's a great coach and a great eye for talent. Listen, they play basketball the right way. And they're playing basketball that way, was played that way long before analytics. And when analytics come and go, it'll still be played that way. Listen, if, if, if analytics were so right, 
the, the Golden State Warriors would be the favorites to win the championship. But you can't pick, you can't get one person to say that Golden State is going to win the championship because everybody is saying you can't win a championship if you shoot a lot of jump shots. Yeah, I mean, and and it, look, we've we've watched baseball for a long time, and I Golden State is playing well, but and I mean, and you can make the same argument for OKC because OKC, you know, really, really they don't get points in the paint as far as you know post ups. I mean, you look at the makeup of the Golden State Warriors. And when it get down to playoff time, we've seen it last year. They went cold last year in the playoffs, and they lost. If Kyrie and, and Thompson gets cold, where is the scoring coming from? You no, know, I mean, that's that's the issue. See, and that's why you get a guy like Brooke Lopez. But the thing about a guy like Brooke Lopez is, well, what about all of those games where Steph Curry and Klay Thompson got to shoot in order for them to be effective and winning? Like, you – like – that balance and that mix, like, you, you got to be careful when you try to do what they're about to try and do, in my opinion. Because, and you know, the whole analytics thing and, you know what I'm saying, you know, Barkley, you know, being outspoken, but, you know, he, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of truth to what he's saying. And with any statistics, you can get them. You can get the numbers to say whatever you want them to say. But people that watch basketball and know basketball, listen, you ain't got to you ain't got to talk to them about the value of the three point shot. Yeah, it's a good shot if you got guys out there that can hit it. But if you're mm-hmm. gonna rely on shooting threes, you're not gonna win and everybody knows that. And driving to the lane, it's the same I mean it's the same thing. You can have a team that drives to the lane, but if you don't have the guys that can make the next play, it don't matter who driving to the lane. Because eventually in the playoffs, everybody, everything gets a little bit closer. Everybody is more locked in. Guys are not as lackadaisical out there on the basketball court. It's a totally different game, period. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Next up, um, before the All-Star break, Ennis Cancer, center for the Jazz, you know, said he wanted to trade out of there. And, you know, Rudy Gobert, I think this is second year out of France. It may be his third, but Rudy Gobert had, you know, developed into a nice basketball player. And when I watched him at the draft combine when he was coming out, I he couldn't catch the ball. I didn't know what I was looking at. But Rudy Gobert has turned into a decent young center, and he's taking time away from cancer. Cancer's demanding a trade. The Jazz say they're listening to offers, but they're not shopping them. But Adrian Wojnarowski from Yahoo Sports said the reason why no deal is going to get done is because the Jazz are asking for too much for Cancer, who, okay player, but, I mean, in my opinion, really hasn't proved anything. They're asking for a first-round pick and a young player with some upside. What's your thoughts on the Jazz trying to move Cancer? Well, I mean, this is what we talked about. This is this is exactly what we talked about. When we talked about that whole Gordon Hayward thing and the money that they gave him and what they was going to do around that, this is, this is what is the result of that, in my opinion. Looking at the, the landscape of the Jazz, 
and guys not getting the opportunities that they want and them, you know, having to go to the guys that that they think are going to be the future of that team. And as and, and cancer, I can understand. See, especially if you're from overseas, you don't expect to come to the United States and be in Salt Lake City. You expect to come to the United States and be in New York City. That's mm-hmm. just what you're looking for. Like it's just, the idea of when you come here, what you're going to get, I just think it's different. I mean, you know, he couldn't play at Kentucky. You know, and, and Kentucky would have gave him a little bit more of that feel of what you was looking for when you came to the States. And then you go to Utah. So, you know, it's listen, it's hard to play there. It's hard to play there because – it's not what you – when you think of an NBA city, when you think of a – now, they love their basketball. But if you're an NBA player and you're and you looking for the NBA lifestyle, Utah is not the place to go. So I can – you know, I can understand him not doing it, and I can see why they're asking for so much in return because, I mean, good big men are hard to find, and he's serviceable enough. Maybe a team on Wednesday say, you know what, we got to take this chance on him because he might be the piece that finish it up for us. But you got to hold out for it because, I mean, in Utah, how many of your guys are going to resign anyway? So you got to get the most out of him before you let him go because it's clear he's going to leave when he can. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I think he's a decent player. Um, I don't know if he's ever going to be uh, – a great defensive player, but I think if I could compare him to one player that's playing now, it's probably Pekovich that played for the Timberwolves. Pekovich isn't a really good defensive player, but Pekovich is one of the few big men in the league that actually can play with his back to the basket and score in the paint. Um, mm-hmm. he, don't give, he don't give you much other than that, but in today's NBA in which there ain't many big men that can actually score his back to the basket, you know, uh, I would cover the guy like Cancer if I could have other like another big man around him that can actually defend and uh, rebound and block shots. Yeah, I mean there's definitely a couple of different ways you can go with it. Um, next up, the Phoenix Suns. You know, rumors is that they're most like you know teams are interested in Goran's Rajic. The Sixers, Lakers, a bunch of teams are interested in him. But they're saying that the Suns are more likely to try to trade Isaiah Thomas or Gerald Green than Goran Dragic. And, you know, obviously, in my opinion, Dragic, in my opinion, is a better player long term than those other two guys. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, he, he is a good player. I mean, he was 13 all NBA last year. And, you know, I mean, he can dribble, he's tough, he understands the game. I mean, you get a point guard like that, you you competing with the other top point guards in the, you know, in the league. So, you know, having a guy like that is important. Isaiah Thomas, to me, is a perfect backup point guard in the NBA. He's a change-of-pace guy. He's tough. You know, he's going to compete every night. But you you don't, like, like, you trade – you can't trade your best point guard when – your other point guard in Glesso is a guy that has been injury prone. And to me, that would be a huge mistake 
for them. But you know, I think with with, with Isaiah Thomas, he's played he's played well given any opportunity that he's had. So he could be serviceable for a lot. Of, I mean, he could be serviceable for a lot of teams. But the question is, is this team's going to be willing to give up something that's worth Isaiah Thomas? And you know, this like. People look at the NBA and they think it's 2K. This is not. This, this ain't no video game. And rarely do you trade a guy, and it's a mutual agreement where both teams where they think they came off good. Rarely do it happen. You got to sacrifice something when you think you're getting something or something in return. The same thing when we just talking about Utah. You know, you listen. Utah trying to get more than they give up. And I mean, every team is trying to do that. So it's going to be hard for you to get – I mean, teams don't often trade young guys that were any team all-NBA. So if they do, they would – I mean, it would be have to be a, a, a trade that nobody's seen coming, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, because reportedly what they want for him is, you know, a first-round pick and, like, a player that has a chance to be an all-star. Like, you know, names that was mentioned was, you know, them trading him to the to Orlando and possibly getting Tobias Harris or Vucevic, you know, for him. And, you know, it being more players involved, you know, for, you know, going Dragic. And, I mean, obviously, like, for them to give him up, they obviously believe that they can't sign him at, at the end of the season, which he's going to be a free agent and they're trying to get something in return. But, I mean, we'll see how it plays out. Um, Next up, the Denver Nuggets, you know, two players that – three, actually, that they're willing to trade. One is Ty Lawson, and the Celtics are, you know, interested in him, and they're willing – you know, rumors are that they're willing to give up Avery Bradley and Marcus Smart to him. And then Aaron Aflalo, the Blazers are trying to get, you know, deeper as far as their wing players as far as their bench, and the Blazers are interested in Aflalo and Wilson Chandler. Yeah, you know, listen, the Blazers, they need a bench. And I don't know how they can swing it, but they definitely need a bench in order to to make a run. I mean, you got some really great young talent on that team that's coming into its prime, and they need some, you know, they need a little bit of support. But when I look at, like, the Denver situation and I look at the the Boston situation because they, like, like they're kind of in the same spot but with different kinds of players. Yeah. Boston got younger guys, but they don't got a team that can compete for a championship. Denver got older guys that can't, you know, that they that really can't compete for a championship. And, and unless you get one or two free agents to change your fortune real quick, you're going to have to go young in order to win. I mean, I, I would admit this. I thought that Marcus Smart would be better than what he is. I thought he would be better than than what he is at the at the NBA level. I thought he was a I thought he was a better athlete than he's shown. Mhm. And and no. I think that's the whole difference in him being uh uh a, a NBA all-star, or just being a serviceable point guard in the NBA? Yeah, I mean, I, he, he need to lose weight. Like, I mean, he 
I mean, if he's going to play at this level and play guard, I mean, and he's about 6'4", and he do got long arms, Marcus Smart can't play at 220, 225. I mean, he just can't do it. <laughs> Point well, I'm like this. I'm, I am – I was known as a bigger guard coming through college because I was six foot and I was like 195. Well, as a pro – by the end of the, by the end of my first year overseas, I only weighed 180. So you definitely need to get that baby fed off and get ripped up in order to play at a professional level. You're absolutely right about that. And he's still young, yeah. but he has to lose that weight because you, you don't want to see a situation where he's like Baron Davis where it it just take away from his athleticism and he always getting hurt because he's carrying too much weight. Yeah, I mean, and the thing about it was Baron Davis was a freak of nature. I mean, Baron Davis was 6'3", and when, like, Baron Davis, good good weight for Baron Davis was like 225, and he was fast, and, and he had a great vertical, and he was, you know, but Marcus Smart ain't the same athlete as Baron Davis, and he not as sudden as Baron Davis, and he can't jump like Davis. So, no, I mean, he no. no. He got to get himself in tip-top shape. I think for these guys, like a lot of them don't realize how great the athletes are until they get there, and then they find out, like, look, I got to get – I got to be in the best shape possible to be able to play against these guys, like, because I'm these the best of the best athletes. A lot of these guys may not have the same offensive skill set as me, but the guy that's defending me, dude is 6'7", and he can move his feet, and he can run and jump. And I gotta be able to get separation and jump and try to get around this guy. No, listen, you learn it quick though. You learn it quick that these guys are way better than you thought because the preseason summer league is nothing like playing against those professionals come January, February, and March. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, next up, um, back to Brooklyn, you know. They've been trying to trade all three, their three best players. You know, Darren Williams and Joe Johnson, you know, are on the table. I mean, it's no telling who would be interested, but I did hear that the Pistons, for whatever reason, are interested in Joe Johnson. And you know what? I can ask them, ever since they got rid of Josh Smith, they've gotten better. And them losing Brandon Jennings did hurt them, but the East is bad. And it's an opportunity that they can get into the playoffs and, you know, you never know what can happen. But, you know, they're allegedly interested in Joe Johnson. What's your thoughts on any team being interested in Darren Williams and Joe Johnson? Well, see, with Darren Williams, the the thing that's tough with Darren Williams is is that Darren Williams can no longer defend his position. And when you can't defend your position at the NBA level, it's hard for you to get on the floor unless you're a dynamic offensive player. And he's no longer that. He once was, but he's no longer, you know, he's no longer that thing. So when you so when you look at him, it's just a, a, a tough situation for Darren Williams. But when it comes to Joe Johnson, Joe Johnson has a NBA playoff game. He can post up. He can beat his, he can beat his man one-on-one, and he can pass out of the double team. So if you're if if you're a team that's close, having a guy like Joe Johnson is a help. It it just depends on 
the right fit and what that team is missing. You know, it's just it's just one of those things in which you wanted to give up. I mean, if you're going to get rid of a Joe Johnson, then, I mean, it's not very many teams that can take on his contract and, and not give up a lot to getting him. So that's the hard part about it. That's the hard part about getting, Joe, you know, Joe Johnson. Now, the Brooklyn Nets, Prokhorov is trying to sell the team. We bought the team. He hired Billy King, which, in my opinion, is the reason why he's trying to sell the team now. They tried the quick fix. They thought they was going to put it together and challenge and win the East. No, I, me personally, I never thought it was it was going to be good enough to work. You know what they tried to do. I mean, at this point, if you are the owner, or I mean, you're in a position in which you got decisions to make. Like at this point, what do you decide to do with this team? Like if if you had to make Decisions with personnel. Man, if you're the owner of this team, you give Jay-Z whatever he wants and try to get Kevin Durant. I mean, that's like that. that that's a fix for them somehow, some way. I mean, with him being on Rock Nation. But other than that, when you when you put it all in and you don't got the right person putting it all in, it is – it's absolutely not going to work. Like, people look at the Miami Heat and they think, well, you know, all we got to do is get stars together and then we'll win. Well, listen, Dwayne Wade was one of the best players at his position. Chris Bosh was one of the best players at his position. LeBron was the best player in the league. So putting that group of players together, yeah, that gives you a chance to win immediately. But – like Brooklyn did it with older guys trying to do it. It it, it, it just it, it was never going to work. And, and anybody that thought it was going to work, they were sadly mistaken. So, I mean, I, for the life of me, I don't know how Billy King has continued to get job after job in the in the NBA because he. I, I mean, I, I don't know nowhere where he did it, where he's done a good job at throughout the course of it. I mean, he's had a couple different jobs, and there's a reason for that. So, you know, they put they put, they put their trust in a guy who thought he could put it together, and it, and, and it didn't work out. And so now it's one of those things where you – listen, it's only one thing you can do, and you gotta you got to let it – you got to destroy it and burn it down and start from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, as Brother Muzon said in the wire, destroy and rebuild, man, because mm-hmm. – when you when you at that point and you know it's no looking up, you gotta just tear it down. And you know, what I mean, the Sixers waited too long to do it. They didn't want to do it, and you know, they you know after they changed management and you know new owners and all that, they're in the process of doing it now. And the NBA, the way it's structured, that's the only way to go. You get to a certain point. I mean, the crazy thing about it, look at the Atlanta Hawks. The Hawks. For a while, they put a team together, and you know, for about five, six years, they I think they they may have got a first round one time, and they signed Joe Johnson to the big deal. They had Josh Smith, you know, they had Horford, you know, they had that team. They traded for Mike Bibby one year. They couldn't they couldn't win that quickly. They hired Danny Ferry. Danny Ferry say, look, Joe Johnson and Josh Smith got to go. Point blank, period. They mm-hmm. get rid of those, they get rid of those two players, and in two years, 
along with drafting players. Jeff Teague, they already had. They let loose Jeff Teague. You know what I mean? They out horse is still there. In two years, since letting Josh Smith and Joe Johnson go, they the best team in the East, and they legitimate title contenders. Yeah, I mean, you know, Danny Curry played basketball. He's watched basketball. He knows basketball. So when you have a guy like that that is knowledgeable and can pick players and get the right players, then you have a chance to rebuild. Like, the thing that's so frustrating with the Sixers, to me, is that, and this is just my personal opinion. Now, God rest his soul, John Harnett was one of the best basketball minds that I've ever met, and he didn't play basketball. You know, he just coached it. He just watched it. He studied under, you know, Coach Chaney. But Coach Chaney played basketball, so what he was teaching them was from a basketball point of view. And I just would prefer, if I'm going to build from the bottom up, give me a guy that is knowledgeable enough in the game to know the guys that can play. I am still so disappointed in the Sixers with that pick. They they had Alfred Payton, and they would have had their point guard for the future. But now they're sitting here trying to trade Michael Carter-Williams and they won't commit to him because, you know, he's a, he's a player on, you know, putting up numbers on a, a terrible team. And so yeah. that's I mean that's what that's this is what you get when when you do that when you do it like that this is exactly what you get that's why Atlanta is good and that's why Brooklyn is where they are and that's why the Sixers are going to continue to struggle if they don't get lucky and get the number one pick again. Yeah, I mean, see, I I'm an old school guy and I just want people that just understand the game and just can look at a guy and know who plays like. Like, when I write my scouting reports for, you know, NBA prospects, NFL prospects, I mention – it's rare that I mention, like, like I won't ever use analytics. Like, even now in football, people, you know, will use analytics. Like, a guy last year, man, got into an argument about who was the better running back prospect, and it was Kadeem Carey, and it was – um the running back for Arizona State. I can't think of his name right now. The guy told me, oh, well, the other guy's better than Carey because he averaged more touchdowns in the red zone for Carey. I said, look, I don't need an analytic number to tell me who's better. I watched Kadeem Carey tape, and I watched the other guy's tape, and he's a better football player, point blank, period. I don't need numbers to tell me who's better. Like I, And people that – are football guys, but baseball, whomever it be. And I think in baseball and probably more other sports, the analytics do come in play because for a long period of time, nobody was a big, you know, nobody thought that on-base percentage is big. And the analytics guys came with that. And me personally, if I'm putting together a baseball team, not to get off track, I want guys that get on base a lot and I want guys that put the ball in play as far as strikeouts. Now, I think in baseball, it, it's something that you definitely need to take heed of. But well, in bat- here's the thing. Football, but listen, I don't know. This is the thing about it. 
the reason why the analytics work in baseball is because of look at how many games there is. There's a lot more opportunities for that to be proven true or false. Yeah. But in the other sports, it don't happen as much. So, you, you, I mean, in that alone, you can see, well, this is what this guy is going to do in this spot, period. You know, you compare a, 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 a big poppy to a, a Alex Rodriguez, and you may say, well, Alex Rodriguez is a better player overall, but if I got one bet in Alex Rodriguez in his prime, give me big poppy because he's a clutch hitter. But that's yeah. because you've seen it time and time again. And in that case, yeah, the analytics is true. But if in any sport you got that many opportunities to see it, you would believe it to be true without the, without the analytics of it. And that's the part of it that, you know, it, like to me it's just amazing. It's like, well, why don't you just, if you just watched it more, you would be able to tell. You wouldn't need that. See, in baseball, it's 162 games. You can't watch everybody every single night. So you look at the stats and you find the numbers that work. So in that case, it do make sense, but not in a sport where you play 16 games in the NFL. You play 82 games in the NBA, and then you got those guys only playing 70 of those games, and then you got so many other variables in that whole thing, back-to-backs, how many, you know, how many games in a row, and all of that. So those numbers, yeah, they make sense in baseball because look at, look at how many times you can test it against it. You got 162 times that most baseball players are playing in 100 are playing in 150 games for the most part, 140 games. So the, 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 that part of it is true, but only because look, look at the percentage of times you get to see it. It's simple. It's basic. If you Guess what? The reason why you're good at what you do is because you watch more film than everybody else. You see it more times than anybody else. So you don't – I mean, your, your statistics – going to coincide with what you say, but only because you've seen it a lot more. So in baseball, it makes sense. Any other sport, it really don't make as much sense to try to go on statistics about a player's ability to make or miss shots or make or miss plays. Yeah, I definitely agree. All right, real quick before we head over to the next topic, Amari Stoudemire um, has agreed to join the Dallas Mavericks. Um now, looking at Amari's numbers in 24 minutes a game, you know, he's had 12.8 points, you know, over six rebounds, um, shooting a decent percentage. You know, he's not going to be asked to play major minutes. What can Amari Stoudemire, like them bringing him aboard, does that make them better? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, because one thing that Stoudemire can do is he can still make the 16 16- to 18-foot jump shot, and if you put a small guy on him, he can still post him up and get buckets down low. And and that's what you're looking for from your backup big. You're looking for a guy that can still give you something offensively. And typically, when you look at their team, you put a Brandon, you put Brandon right out there with Stoudemire, then you're asking Brandon to protect the rim, and then you're asking just Stoudemire to hold his ground. So I think I, I think it's a good I think it's a good um, move for them. The only thing about Dallas is, though, I, I guess I thought that them getting Rondo would allow them to score a little bit more. 
But what's hurt Dallas is the fact that Rondo is not a great shooter. So you got another guy on the floor where guys can kind of play off and get in the space of other guys that are trying to drive and usually see a different kind of angle. So, you know, Stoudemire will help that spacing when you come off the bench and if you ever put a situation where you got you got Stoudemire, you got Chandler, you got Dirk, you got Rondo, and you got Monte Ellis out there, then you, you, then you can kind of space the floor. But as good as Rondo is, it kind of hurts what Dallas typically does. Okay. All right. I mean, I definitely, definitely good points. I definitely think Amari will bring some to the table. And mm-hmm. Rondo, he does a lot of other things. But, I mean, like you said, when you out there and guys know that you're not a threat to shoot the basketball, like you said, everybody else gets defended differently, um, you know, regardless of how good of a, you know, shooter. I mean, that's the only weakness in his game is he can't shoot. I mean, he defends, he can pass, he can make plays, he plays hard, he's a leader, he's a champion. But, I mean, still at this point in his career, he hasn't – I mean, he, the crazy thing about it is he's gotten better as a shooter, but that just tells you how bad of a shooter he was when he first got into the league, man. Like, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, All right. you know, he do. Don't get me wrong. I would much rather have Rondo than not have Rondo. But this is one of those things where, like, getting a guy midseason, the trade might not benefit you as much as it will once those guys have played together for a while. Okay. I mean, hopefully they – I mean, they got 30 games left heading into the playoffs, you know, to get things in order. And, I mean – these guys are professionals, and, you know, the home stretch, guys do got – I think they got enough time to get better and get used to each other. Yeah, they do. I mean, and, and, and then I think the great thing about Dallas is, you know, I think they got the most underrated coach in the league, and I think he'll figure out a way to make sure that that he's getting the best out of those guys like he typically does. Okay. All right. Now, I'm, earlier, you know, I had texted you and you said you had – you know, came up with some questions and, you know, some stuff that you wanted to ask me pertaining to football. So we can, you know, head over to football and, you know, go ahead and shoot. Well, you know, we, you know, last week we went over, you know, we talked about the offensive linemen. And, you know, I just wanted to move down a little bit. I wanted to look at the tight ends. Give me, you know, the tight ends that you've seen on film, you know, in the, in this upcoming draft. Guys that you think can make a difference this year, and is there anybody that surprised you, um, whether good or bad, at the tight end position thus far? I mean, I have finished my film study as far as the tight ends probably about a month ago. Yeah, probably about like three, four weeks ago. And at that point, I came out with 12 tight ends with a draftable grade. And the first guy – and I hadn't watched a lot of him during the season. Played for the University of Minnesota, and it's Max Williams. He's a redshirt sophomore. Um, his dad played in the NFL. His dad was an offensive lineman, a guard in the center. Played tight end. He's six four. He's two sixty. And the first thing that stands out when I watch him is his athleticism and his speed. 
and his ability to get separation, after he catches the ball, he's a legit threat to do something with the football, make a big play with it. Um, he has great hands. He can jump. He can go up a high point to football, and he also blocks as well. Like at University of Minnesota, they used him in a medley of different ways. They lined him up traditionally. He lined up outside. He lined up in the slot. They put him on the move. Um, he's the only tight end in this draft that got a first-round grade for me. Like, I gave him a late first-round, early second-round grade. I wouldn't be surprised that a team pulls the trigger on him somewhere in the late 20s or in the 30s. I mean, he's that good, natural hands catcher, just plucks the football out of the air. And he had a play in the bowl game that showed off his athleticism. He caught a football about on a 15-yard dig across the field. He turned up field. guy tried to low bridge him. He high-hurdled that guy. Another guy came probably three or four yards later. Right after he got off the first high hurdle, he jumped right back up and jumped over the next guy and took it like 50 yards down the field for a touchdown. He's that good. I know he's on the red shirt sophomore, but, you know, with a, a – it's no way, in my opinion, just based upon film, that he's not the best tight end in this draft, and he should be the first tight end taken. Um, another guy that impressed me, and you know, I was impressed. I was impressed with his film, and I was impressed with his moving ability for a guy his size. And it's Clyde Walford, the tight end for the University of Miami, and I gave him a third round grade. He's six four. He's two sixty three. And I didn't realize in watching my, watching him play for Miami the past three years and him being a part of offense how athletic he was, you know, because I look at him and I see him block well. You know, he's a, he's probably, out of all the tight ends in his draft, like he can do both. He can block, he can catch. He really is a good inline blocker. But he can catch that football. He can make a play with it afterwards. He got sneaky speed, and he's a deceptive route runner, and he can get behind you. And a senior bowl week, he put on a show all week as far as getting out there and running routes and catching the football. Um, I was very surprised with his movement ability. Like, going into the senior bowl week, a lot of people thought of him as a tight end two, tight end three as far as a guy just being a blocker. But he's more than just a blocker. Like, he, he's a guy that can make plays with his hands and make plays down the field. Um, another guy that caught my eye, and he's probably a guy that's probably going to go in a fifth, sixth round, is Gene Sifrin from UMass. He's 26 years old right now. He started playing football. Actually, he's 27. He's six foot seven. He's 250 pounds. He played at UMass. Only one year of football there, 41 catches, over 637 yards, he had six touchdowns. If he was 22, 23 years old, they would be talking about him going, you know, somewhere in the second, third round because he fits the part. Athletically, he has it. To him, to, you know, to do what he did in that one season of playing football is great. The thing about it is if you look at the NFL, and we talked about this earlier, you talked about guys not lasting long. Most guys come in at, you know, 21, 22, and some guys are done physically by the time they're 27 years old. The question is, him being 27 already, 
at the end of his first rookie contract, he'll be 30. Is that all you're going to get out of him is that one rookie contract, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so in a situation like in a situation like that, is that a guy that don't get drafted but definitely get like invited, um, you know, to to try out for the team, you know, as a rookie free agent? Heading into the combine, like the combine for a guy like him is going to be critical. And I, looking at him, his tape, he'll be he should be a guy that'll win the the t-shirt and short contest and he's six seven he's 250 and he's very athletic and then, like right now i got him as this i gave him a six round grade mm-hmm. if he go if he go out there to combine and he he start running some crazy times and stuff there'll be general managers that say you know what instead of trying to get him as an undrafted free agent We'll try to get him as a seventh round that we may take him in the fifth or sixth round. Like, for a guy like him from a small school and a guy with not a lot of football expertise, the combine could be a tool for him to show that, you know what, he got some he got some athletically. And if we can only get two contracts out of him, if we can get six seasons out of him, and, you know, is he a fast learner? Like, these teams give these guys and – you know, they got an opportunity to talk football with them and put stuff on the board. They're going to, you know, talk them and see where his football IQ and how fast he can learn things. If he's a fast learner and he kills the combine as far as the athletic stuff, he'll go from being a sixth, seventh round draft pick to possibly don't get picked in the fifth round. Oh, okay. And, I mean, of course, I always got to ask this. Is there any basketball players that are turning into tight ends in the in this upcoming draft? Not that I know of at this point. And you know, last year it was Larry Webster. His dad played at Temple. Larry Webster played at well, I think it was Shippensburg last year. He was a basketball player for Shippensburg for four years. And last year, his fifth year, he had graduated, so he played his fifth year. He had played football for one year and. You know, he was in East West Shrine game last year, and they had him playing defensive end. They had him playing some tight end, and the Lions drafted him. And to this point, the Lions still trying to decide whether they're going to keep him. If is he going to play defensive end or tight end? Not right now, but one player that has a legit chance of playing football if he wants to, and is Rico Gathers from the University of Baylor. And I know you've seen him play. Oh yeah, Rico Gathers. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if and I don't know if he ever played before. I have no clue, but I know he about six seven. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he he two hundred eighty pounds. And last year I seen him come down the lane and dunk on a guy, and the guy went rolling into the first row. Yeah. And he's a great rebounder. Like you see him, you can see that he got good hands because the way he rebounds the ball, he catches in traffic as a basketball player. Next year. If Rico Gavis decides that basketball isn't his future, and obviously we know he can go overseas and play, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Rico Gavis is a guy that if I'm in the scouting department on any NFL team, I see Rico Gavis, when his eligibility is up, I'm asking him, do he want to play football? Because I can see him playing tight end. 
He got a big enough body to play defensive end. Like, I don't know if he has a football background at all. He may have. I, I don't know. But that's a guy, when you're just looking at an athlete, he's as big as Julius Peppers. Not the freak athlete that he is, but 6'7", about 280, long arms, good hands. That's a guy that you should be, you know, looking at. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean – Absolutely. I mean, as soon as you said it, you know, what I mean, I was like, oh yeah, that's that's definitely a guy that I would, you know, see definitely going over to the football thing. And um, you know, my the, the last question is, it seems the 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 tight end position has evolved into more of a playmaker position. How has how has that changed you? and grading your tight ends and what they can do at the NFL level? You know what? I mean, like, with the change, I'm, and every every team's board is, is going to be different. Like, when I scout these guys, I, I scout what they do well, and I scout what they don't do so well. You know, depending on what kind of offense you run and what you're asking the tight end to do, one guy may be higher on your board than the other guy. If you're a team that likes to put the tight end on a move and put them in a slot and you like to isolate them, you might like a tight end that's a bit faster, a bit smaller guy that, you know, can be a mismatch for a linebacker or a safety. Um, there's a lot of tight ends in this draft that has more traditional size and they're more throwback tight ends. You know, guys that can, you know, line up at the line of scrimmage. They can be the second tight end slash fullback, and they can be a blocker. It all depends on what you're looking for. But at the end of the day, the evolution of this position, you're ideally looking for a guy that can be a mismatch nightmare, point blank period. A guy that's an undersized, you know, power forward, a guy that can run, a guy that can move, a guy that can run routes, a guy that can catch the ball a guy that can high point it and make plays in traffic because you get one of those guys and there's a linebacker on him and like how Gronkowski was able to get open in the Super Bowl and all during his career. If you get one of those guys, you got a legit advantage in this league. I mean, the Patriots had two of them. One of them is in jail, you know, facing a murder charge. They had, they had two of them. If you can get those kind of guys, you got to go out there and get them. And, you know, just looking at, like, it's a guy that a lot of people might not be talking about. His name Rory Anderson. He played tight end for South Carolina. He's 6'5". He's about 235 pounds. And he's not your traditional tight end. But if you look at the plays that he made during his career, Rory Anderson got a chance to be one of those players at the next level that can make a difference if you put him in the right offense and you use him the right way. You know what I mean? In my opinion, one of the best things that coaches do when scouts and you know, everybody together is getting the right guys that fit for what you do and then allowing guys do what they, to do what they do best. I always go back to it. Chris Gokong led college football in sacks, broke the record for sacks in the season. Eagles never let Chris Gokong rush the passer, and Chris Gokong never w was – Never was – he was an okay player. He never was the impact player that he could have been 
because the Eagles never allowed him to do what he did. And at the time, I was interning at WIP, and me and Ray Dittinger had a long talk about this. And everybody wanted to disagree with us, and they didn't know they was talking about. Ray Dittinger said the Eagles should have, in passing situations, should have let him rush the passer. They never did it. Never did it at all. Mm. It was one of the stupidest things I ever heard of. Yeah, well, there ain't no point in getting guys, like you said, and not putting them in the best position, you know, to uh, succeed. And then, you know, and following up that question, and, I mean, it's a great segue into it, the Eagles situation at the tight, at the tight end. Do you look at them this year, you know, just Ertz being the guy getting the majority of the snaps and just moving on from there? There's no reason why he shouldn't be a focal point offensively. I mean, point blank period. There's no excuse why. I mean, he's a mismatch every week he's out there because he's big, he's fast, he can run routes, he can catch the ball. I mean, and it was times last year in which he was open at Sanchez and Foles didn't get him the ball. It was times in which he wasn't out there like he should have been, um, you know, because they said, oh, he's not that good of a blocker. Look, damn all that. Get your best players out there on the field. You put Ertz out there enough, he's going to block. You know what I mean? Brent Selleck had a great career here. Brent Selleck is physically done for. Brent Selleck isn't the threat that Zach Ertz is. Zach Ertz is one of those guys that can catch 60 to 75 passes and get you 10 touchdowns in a season and be a difference maker outside or inside. That's why you drafted him. Put him out there and let the kid go. Yeah, I hope that. I definitely hope to see more of that. I mean, I mean, it's just no simpler than that. I mean, you just got to put them out there and let them go. I mean, the crazy thing about it, they, they also signed James Casey, and they haven't used – like, I've seen James Casey in Houston, and I've seen Houston use James Casey in a way that James Casey should have been used. They use James Casey as a blocker like an H-back, fullback type thing. Eagles never have used them in that way. Like, never. Like, I, mm. I don't get it. Like, you pick it up certain players, and then you're not using them in the best way that they should be used. I mean, why did they even sign them? Yeah, I meant, you, I meant you, you're right. You know, you just got to find a way to put the guys in the best position of success. To succeed, man, and I just I, I hope moving forward they they figure it out, that out and 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 do just that. Okay. To end the show, you had brought up media versus journalists, and I add media media journalists and analysts um, into the whole thing. Kevin Durant went off <laughs> over the All Star break. You know, flat out went out went off because I mean. Certain guys continue to pick and prod him about him and Westbrook and then, you know, about the coach. And Kevin Durant basically went off and said, y'all don't know bleep. Majority of y'all don't. And that's, you know, that's that. He just, you know, flat out went off. Um, being in this field for the period of time that I've been in, you got certain guys that end up with the jobs because they went to school and they look clean. They may be look a certain way. They may be a certain, you know, race or whatever. Maybe they get the job, and they're good writers. Like just they they write well. 
don't really know the sport well, they write well, and they get these jobs. And the funny thing to me is, like, I go out every day, and whatever I do, I try to get better at and learn more as I go along. Like, when I got my first internship, you know, at WIP, I wanted to soak in everything. I wanted to learn everything. When I got a chance to talk to an athlete, you know, while they was there, I wasn't afraid to go over there and shake their hand and ask them about, you know, if it was John LeClaire, if it was a hockey, whoever it was, I tried to learn. You got guys that have been covering sports or been on the beat for teams for years and have absolutely, like Kevin Durant said, have no idea what they're talking about. And in my opinion, like, I sit there and I'm like, how? Like, how is this possible? Like, how can you be around a team on a daily basis and not learn nothing after all these years? Like, I don't get it. Phil Jasner, Hall of Fame basketball writer. Phil Jasner knew about the sport. You know what I mean? Phil Jasner knew about basketball. He took the time all those years that he was covering basketball for the Sixers. He knew the sport. The sport he learned it. You got a guy like John Gonzalez, and I don't mind naming names, who went to Temple, graduated the journalism school, had a radio show for for ninety seven five was a complete disaster. Reason why he got fired. Now. And people get mad at me. They say, I'm, I'm not throwing shade. Like, how how do you consider, like, I look at Sixers at halftime, and they say the basketball analysts are John Gonzalez and Doug Overton. How is John Gonzalez considered a basketball analyst? Uh, and the thing about it is I've, I've always been a student of sports. I've always studied them. Um, from a different point of view. And in that case, I, I I feel like I am an analyst. But to me, the media in general is self-serving. The media is only going to do what makes them get more attention. So in that case, it's a little bit harder for um, – the media to get the respect of players. Now, journalists, I expect I, if you call yourself a journalist, I expect you to report what the facts are. What your opinion is should not be part of whatever is going on. And and to me, when I look at when when, when the way that Kevin Durant reacted, you react that way for two reasons. One reason is you upset because you don't want to hear it, which is the case. The other reason is because the question that they keep asking you is not a question that you really want to answer. And I'm going to tell you like this. KD can be frustrated, but if he don't win a championship soon, I will tell you this. It will be because of the coach that they have. And it is, and, and Scott Brooks has done a, a an outstanding job of getting these guys to a certain point, but he has not given Kevin Durant or Russell Westbrook the knowledge that they need in order to be champions. I mean, to me, 
the fact that nobody has took the time to tell Russell Westbrook to slow down is an issue for me. The fact that nobody has told Kevin Durant that you absolutely have to start posting up is an issue for me. And and to me, and to me, when 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 something like when something like that happens, it's more about the coach. Yeah, I mean, it, certain coaches will challenge players regardless of how good they are, regardless of stature, all-star games or whatever, and, you know, hold them accountable. And Carl Malone was talking about this last week when he was on Boomer Carton's show, how Jerry Sloan would kill, you know, rip into him, rip into John Stockton, just like they were ripping the, you know, any of the other players on the team. And Greg Popovich is the same way with Tim Duncan and those guys. I mean, Kevin Durant and Westbrook have high basketball IQs. But like you said, you got to sit these guys down and tell them, if you want to get to this level or if you want to get better, you got to do this this way. And Scotty Brooks played in the era. You know what I mean? He played in the era in which he's seen great players and what they do. Like I talk about this all the time. All the great players that I ever watched in the 80s and 90s could post up and they could score from the mid-range. And, yeah, you know I mean, what I mean? I, I get into arguments with people. The first thing they say is, and I was talking about Big Man a couple of weeks ago, I was talk, you know, talking about Raheem Christmas and how he'd been in college for four years and had no idea how to score his back to the basket. And the thing that everybody says, oh, well, all the other big, look, I don't care about all the other big men. Like, that means nothing to me. That means a damn thing to me. That's the problem, that none of the big men know how to score their back to the basket. You know why? Because these coaches from – you get a kid, he's 12 years old, and he's 6'4", you're, you're not telling him to get down there and post up. You know what I mean? You got a, a kid that's 6'8", 13 years old. No, go ahead. We letting him shoot threes. We letting him shoot jump shots. These kids aren't being taught the game right. Yeah, the, and then the thing about it is it's one of those things where you can always – like, you can always move out. You can always move out. You can always work on your, your, your being able to shoot the basketball. You can always do that. But you, you can't do it. The, it. It don't work the other way. It really don't work the other way. You can't let a guy shoot jump shots his whole entire life and then say, all right, you got to figure out how to post up and score with your back to the basket when you're a big guy. But when I look at – when when I look at Scott Brooks, I just I, I, I just see a guy who sells those guys in their development. And it's no knock on him and, but because everybody has their strengths. You know, everybody has their certain strengths where they can do certain things. And he's, take, he's taking this, these guys as far as they can go. I, Kevin Durant plays exactly like he did when he won rookie of the year. He's just a little bit bigger than he was then. So he can do it against everybody else. Westbrook, the same thing. It hasn't. The player development is not there, and I don't know if that's something that Scott Brooks is in charge of and in detail. But that's to me, that's a big part of the issue. They 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 they, they haven't grown as NBA players, and and 
in my case. And when you come in the rent and you really don't, I mean, you don't have an answer. Like, you, you can't explain why certain things go a certain way. I mean, I'm watching the games. I can explain to you why. You, you, Kevin Durant still don't know how to get open. Like, he still don't know how to get open. After all this time, like, they, he, he really just runs up to the next man and go put his hand out and try and get the ball. If he don't get the ball, then he just go the other way, and that'd be that. I mean, the art, the, the art of using screens and picks to get open, I mean, where is it? I mean, what, what happened to it? Reggie Miller got open his whole career because he was taught how to run, use picks and run off screens to get open and get shots. I mean, Reggie Miller was a great three-point shooter, but people forget how great of a mid-range shooter he was inside of that three-point line and how Reggie, Reggie Miller ran you rampant. The last player that did it was Rip Hamilton, and Rip Hamilton learned it from watching Reggie Miller. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you would think that guys would watch that and say, "Well, these guys can't really dribble that well. Let me learn how to do it this way," you know. But I mean, they, it, 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 that whole part of basketball is just missing. You know, it ain't like guys have to wait. Guys don't have to wait no more to play. They don't have to wait no more to play. They come right in and they play, and they be doing the same things that they've been doing. And you don't, you don't really see the development in guys in this. I mean, it's disappointing. It's just disappointing where you don't see guys really that games don't go to that next level because they didn't have to sit back and wait. They never had to wait. So they don't have to take the time to learn anything but what they already know how to do. And they just figure out a way to do it a little bit better. And that's 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 an issue. And when, you know, you see a guy like Durant and, you know, you say, well, I'm tired of answering the same questions. Well, guess what? Some people are probably tired of seeing y'all do the same exact things the same way and it not working. So in that case, I understand where people are coming. I understand where people are coming from, but I also get that in, in the media had a role in helping the sports move forward. That is no longer the case. Every individual player has their own promotion with their social sites. So they don't need, you know, they don't need the media like they once did because the games are only on once a week. And you only seen them on, you know, Sundays for football, you know, Monday night, that was it. You don't hear from them no more. Now you, it, now you can go, you can get on your phone right now and see what Kevin Durant is doing right now if he wanted you to. So that part of it, I think, is changing, and that's why you see kind of the rebelling from guys like Marshawn, you know, Marshawn Lynch. And, I mean, I mean, the fact remains, I mean, those guys can answer the questions, but the reason why the NBA does so well is because, you know, you it seems like you know those guys so well. And the, the reason why the NFL does so well is because it's only 16 games and you know you've got – listen, in the NFL – you know the very best players in the world that play football are in the NFL, period. There's no question about that. But the NBA is more of an access thing. You see the guys, you see their faces, they're more outgoing. So those, all of those things, I think, play a role in how people approach the media versus, you know, how they approach journalists and, and, and those things. But as, as moving forward, you're going to have – either the media or analysts. 
journalism is going to be one of those things where in sports it's it's going to be hard to have a place in it because people are going to be like, well, this guy, we don't want the truth. We want to hear what we want to hear, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like you got guys that, like you said, like a journalist that, you know, will write the facts, you know, for the most part, you know, what happened at practice, this is this is and that. And then you got guys that are analysts, and, you know, some analysts, you know, majority of analysts, they get hired as far as, you know, like play-by-player guys that played the game. And then, you know, you got some that haven't. I mean, my whole thing is when you're a journalist, like when you're on the beat and you're part of the media and you got access to these players, like take the time out. And the players will respect you more when you ask questions and try to, you know, find, you know, learn the game and then go from there. Like, it's certain guys that will get respect from certain coaches and certain players because they ask good questions because they're informed questions and they know what they're talking about. And then you got some players and some coaches that don't like, that won't like the fact that you actually know what you're talking about and you might you may point something out that the other guys on the beat have no clue about. And you may point that out. And that's when you see the red faces and you see guys stutter and they don't want to answer those questions. You know what I mean? It's a two-sided thing. But my thing is, and when I decided to get into this field, like I wanted to be a guy that just wasn't a hack, like a guy that just wasn't out there writing anything, just wasn't saying anything. Like I wanted to be a guy that knew the game, that watched all the games and were informed because what happens is, Guys will make comments on radio. Guys will write certain things. And I sit there and I'd be like, well, he didn't watch the game. I know that from what he said or what he's written. And that's what makes guys like Durant and coaches get upset when guys make assumptions or basically lie without, you know, watching the games at all. Yeah, I mean, that's just, don't you know, the, the thing is, you know, it's not like you have a fact checker and everything that gets written. So I think it, it, it I, I just think that those guys are, and they should be a little bit more on guard than they once were because that's, I mean, it just, it, it just happens and it's a sign of the times and everybody is one story away from getting their 15 minutes of, their 15 minutes of fame. And that's, and that's how they approach it. In my opinion, that's how they approach it. Now, nowadays with social media and the internet, people like the guy from I forgot bleedinggreennation.com. dot com. It's one of SB Nation sites. The guy wrote this article, just rip it into Jeremy Macklin, and I mean it was complete BS. And he got Jeremy Macklin to respond. You know what I mean on Twitter, and the guy was made famous for like you know two three weeks, like, and he was just a, a complete hack. Guy, like I read one of his articles after that. He's a complete idiot. Knows nothing about football, nothing at all. You know what I mean? Didn't he have the balls after Jeremy Macklin had this great season to come out and say that he was completely wrong? You know what I mean? This is what people do. Like BlackSportsOnline.com. God tried to get me the right for for that website. Guy raking in all this money and stuff didn't want to give me no compensation. 
You know what I mean? He said he won four or five articles a day. About what? Like, I mean, about what? And the guy, the stories that I see him tweet out, oh, family wears Green Lantern outfits at the guy's, at the guy's funeral. Is that sports? I mean, come on. Like, like are you serious? He's, he sends a reporter out to the Super Bowl. She asked the dumbest, one of the dumbest questions I ever heard, and I felt bad for the girl because they sent her their ass naked. Bill Belichick looked down at her like, huh? Everybody just turned around and, and looking at her like, what are you talking about? But I'm such and such from blacksportsonline.com. Like, I take this very seriously, and I get mad, I get upset, and I get pissed off, and I don't mind coming for whomever when they take the field that I went and went to school for and grinded my ass off and finished at the top of my class for when people don't take it serious. And, you know what I mean? I, like, it just makes me mad because I respect this. I love it and I respect it. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, to me, it's just so important, you know, to to make sure that what you're saying is you're giving me your honest opinion of what you actually see, and it's not about just what you feel. You know, in some situations, you're like, man, I just, you know, th- this is how I feel. I just got a feeling about this game or feeling about this guy. But you got to you, you gotta put that aside and you got to say, listen, what do you see? What is it that you see that makes you think that you can do this or you could do that or that's not going to work. And, and I just don't think there's enough guys that can actually just do that because, one, they don't have the knowledge. Two, they're not looking for the knowledge. They have a different kind of agenda. Yeah, I mean, somebody asked me about it's a, a player, a prospect, draft prospect named Lyndon Trail. He went to University of Florida for two years and – um you know, he transferred out of there. He went to Norfolk State. And, you know, at the Senior Bowl, I wasn't there. He, you know, did well, you know, in the practice. I watched the practices um, on TV, and he did well. You know, I can't – somebody asked me, you know, what's my opinion on him as a player. I said, look, I watched one tape of him playing. He was playing against Bethune-Cookman, and it wasn't impressive. Like, it, I, he, he just – was out there, you know what I mean? Like he uh-huh. was out there. Like when I see a guy that's supposed to be an NFL prospect, I expect him when he playing at a lower level to just stand out when I watch him. And on that film, he just was out there. Now at the Senior Bowl, guys went out there and he probably turned it up when he was there because he was playing against a higher level competition. And you know they tried him at tight end, and you know they tried him out outside linebacker, and they said that he moved well and, you know, he rushed the passer well. But I told her, I said, my grade on him is incomplete because I haven't seen enough film on the guy. You know what I mean? I'm not going to sit here and make up a grade or a scout report on a guy based upon just one game. I need at least four games at least on a player to, to get a, a legit scout report on him. You know what I mean? At least four games. Like, I mean, that's just me. Like, I can read scout reports on guys and tell that the person that wrote the scout report didn't watch an ounce of film on this on that player. Either that or he just blind. Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, and that's and that's the thing that I like to to our listeners. You know, they don't understand. Like the the reason why this works so well is because I definitely understand the work that you put in. Period, and that's why it's one of those things where it's not the kind of show where you're going to hear guys disagree because our eyes are our eyes. So what we see, you know, that's what we see. So that's what we report. It's not about, oh, well, I said this four months ago, so I'm going to just continue to say this regardless of what my eyes say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, guys that I've made mistakes on, like I admit that I made a mistake on a guy. You know what I mean? And, that's that. When I'm wrong, I'm wrong, man. Like, when I'm right, I'm right. I mean, everybody, you're not going to get them all right, especially when it comes to, like, the NFL, NBA draft. I mean, I can only go by what I see um, and, you know, try to compare it to what I know as far as the pro game and how it translates. You know what I mean? But, I, you know, last year everybody, you know, Teddy Bridgewater, blah, 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 this, this, and that because of the pro day. But who had the best quarterback? Who had the best rookie season as a quarterback? Teddy yeah. Bridgewater. Yeah. I mean, point blank period. Like, it's that simple. Yeah, I mean, you can't you, – you definitely can't argue with that. If, if there's anything that Sports Talk Radio was right about, we, we definitely were high on Teddy Bridgewater and – you know, I listen. Once you said he was the guy, then I watched him and said, you know what? He looked like the guy to me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just looking forward. The combine is starting up this weekend. Guys are starting to report. Um, people always ask me about the combine and the impact of the combine, and you know how much should the workouts be weighed in? And you know, I mean, I, it's a piece of the puzzle. You know, I mean, it's not a great piece of the puzzle. At the end of the day, the tape, when there's 21 other guys out there and the helmets and pads are on, that's what you got to go on. I think the combine was two, the two most important things, in my opinion, is the medical part of it, when guys get everything tested, everything, every your blood work, every bone, every ligament, everything. If you don't, if you fail something on that, your stock going to drop instantly. You know what I mean? Point blank. Wherever, wherever you at, it, you're going to drop. Teams will take you off their board because of, because of certain injuries. And then for players that have had off-the-field issues, like, you know, those interviews with those teams, which they get that time with you and they sit down and ask you those questions, that's very important. You know what I mean? Those interviews are important. Now, I mean, a guy can sit and, you know, lie to you, lie in your face and say that, you know what I mean, this and that or whatever, and, you know, they got private investigators, and they try to find stuff out. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, you sit there man-to-man and talk to somebody, you just got to flat out be honest because they will find out. So for Jameis Winston, who's had some off-the-field stuff, Dorio Beck, Green Beckham, you know what I mean? He's had some off-the-field stuff. He supposedly pushed a woman down, down, you know, flight of steps. Like, you're talking about a guy that's, a, in my opinion, a first-round talent that probably won't go, you know what I mean, in the first three rounds, you know, because of that and because of the 
you know, the constant um the constant sell draw test. You know what I mean? Guys that are good players that got off the field issues, the interviews are important, but in my opinion, for real, for real, I mean, what a guy's done, he's done. Like J- Jeremy Hill had some serious off the field stuff before he even strapped it up to play at LSU. And then while he was at LSU, he just flat out punched the guy in the face that wasn't looking and knocked him out. That, you know, put in question his draft stock. Jeremy Hill probably should have went in the first round last year, but he ended up didn't go, didn't go into the second round because of that. The combine, the workouts are a piece of it. The medical is a very big piece of it. The interviews are a piece of it. But I think the guys that are unknowns, the D2 guys that get invited, the small school guys from the, the FCS, those guys have good tape, and they those guys that have dominated at their level, their tape is amazing. The job for them to do is to go there and put up similar athletic numbers as the guys that play at the FBS level. Like point blank period, they got to go there and show out. Because for them, more than any other prospects, any other prospects, like the tape is the tape on certain guys. But for those small school guys, you got to go out, go there, and show out. Yeah, man. I just, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to be in this position because I feel like it's just on the job training, and you know, just watching it and being such a big fan of football and my, you know, studies, of course, being in basketball, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's just a pleasure, man. I'm glad that we've been doing this. I'm glad we get the opportunity to put it out there. And I think at some point this will be the main place people come to when they want to know what kind of players they're going to be getting in the future, regardless of whether it's basketball or football. Yeah, I mean, because, see, what happened is teams may have two players with the same grade heading into the combine. And, you know, they may have the same grade, maybe, you know, the same spot on their draft board. And you can, you know, use the times and stuff to separate that. And then, you know, you bring the guys in for pro day workouts and you get up close to see what they are. Like, I think it's more like, a separation tool, in my opinion. Like, nobody, like, on my board, like, it's going to be rare if somebody drops or goes high because of what they did at the combine. Like, I got enough tape on them. I pretty much know what they are as a player, and I know where they win and where they lose and what system they will fit in. And I've learned over the last few years that it's really important to – you know, you want guys that are talented in point blank pair. You need guys that can play, guys that are just flat-out football players. Like, it's certain guys that won't test well that can just flat-out play football. You know what I mean? Then you get guys that test well that aren't good football players, no instincts, not to – I mean, just don't know how to play. Some guys just flat-out know how to play, and they're not going to test well at all. They're not going to bench press a lot. You know, they're not going to run the fastest time. They might may not have the greatest broad, broad jump and, you know, vertical lead. Some guys 
won't test that test out well, but when you put that helmet and pads on, they flat out getting the job done. They know how to get to the football. They know how to tackle. You know what I mean? They know how to make plays on the ball. They know how to block. You know what I mean? Point blank period. Terrell Davis ran a four seven eight forty, and his stock dropped. And look what happened. Terrell Davis, you know, had a four year run similar to Gail Sayers. And people argue all the time. Gail Sayers is in the in the in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and Gail Sayers only played like 30, 38, 40 games, something like that. And my argument is if Gail Sayers impacted the game in that period of time, they didn't win. The Bears didn't win when Gail Sayers played. They, they weren't good when he played. They put him in the Hall of Fame. Terrell Davis had a better run than him, averaged more yards per game, scored more touchdowns, was the MVP, ran for 2,000 yards, and won two Super Bowls. Was a regular season MVP and a Super Bowl MVP. You can make a legit case for Terrell Davis being a Hall of Famer if you're going to put Gail Sayers in. You can make a legit case for Priest Holmes getting into the Hall of Fame if Gail Sayers deserves a bear. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I absolutely – you know, get that part of it when you talk about the, you know, the combine and those things because the combine is practice. You know, you can actually practice what you're going to do in the combine. And some guys, you know, they're great practice players. You know, the yep. guys that look amazing in practice and then they get in the game, they're, you know, it's their inability to actually slow down to be able to make the right plays that make it tough for them. And you see the same, you know, you see the same kind of thing in uh in in the regular season to the playoffs. You see guys that can do things well in the regular season, the playoffs come for whatever reason they can't do it. You know, uh, a prime example is Peyton Manning. For whatever reason, Peyton Manning is not the same player in the postseason that he is in the regular season. Whatever it may be, you know, of course you're playing better competition, but. It's been times where he's demolished that competition in the regular season and in the playoffs he just couldn't get it done. And so, you know, all of those things all of those things are a factor in you know, what a what makes a player a player. And I think that a lot of that is just based on if you're gonna evaluate a guy is watching it. That's the only way you're gonna be able to figure that out. Nothing else. You know, and, and for for whatever you say about Peyton Manning, I mean, Peyton Manning had these issues in college, you know, at Tennessee. You know, they, they, they said he couldn't win the big game, he couldn't beat Florida. Well, two years later, um, when T. Uh, Martin. T. Martin is the quarterback there, they I mean, they, they won a national championship. You know, so, you know, the, the, these kind of things are things that you just you, – you absolutely have to watch in order to see, and there's nothing else to it. You, that's the only way you're going to figure those things out, and that's why, you know, that's something that I learned, you know, from you, that why it's so important to just watch the film and you just watch those games and you watch them in big spots and you see all these things. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, 
Somebody, I, somebody asked me about the running backs, and I think it was Carl on Twitter, and he asked me about the running backs, and he was saying um, that he liked Ed Dula over a couple guys that I had mentioned before him. I said, well, I said, tell me how many times he's fumbled the football in his career. He didn't know. I said, he's fumbled the football 24 times, lost 18 of them. He can't play running back for me on a full-time basis if he he's letting the ball go that many times. 24 times in a college career, that's a lot. 24 fumbles. Can't play. I mean, and I like Abdul. I don't like him as a full-time player. 24. Yeah, you can't get I that mean, ball away. 24 fumbles, man. As a running back, a guy that's supposed to touch the ball a lot, catching it, and running it, that ain't good. And the first that's thing that's going to happen, that. the first thing that's going to happen with Abdullah when he gets to the combine, everybody there know he got twenty four fumbles, right? They're mm-hmm. going to measure, they're going to measure his hands and see how big or small his hands is. So, and those are the kind of things where people look at and they're like, "Oh, well, his hands are small, his hands are big." Guess what? People. If they can protect the ball, they're going to protect the ball. Your size, that has nothing to do with a guy that fumbles a lot because he'll probably get to the pros and he'll probably fumble more than he should. Yeah, I mean, some guys, it don't matter. Hand size, I mean, and it helps to have bigger bigger hands when you're playing, you know what I mean, certain sports. I mean, obviously, I mean, that's, you, that's common sense, but, I mean, it's been guys with smaller than usual hands or right with size hands that haven't been fumblers, and it's been yeah. guys with, with with big hands that's been fumblers. I mean, he just needs to learn how to hold the football the right way when he's about when it's time for contact. His issue isn't the hands; his issue is his technique with the football. You know, what I mean, it's it's a repetitive thing for him. Like it's a, it's a natural thing for him to not carry the ball the right way when he's about to get hit. And that's the reason why he's fumbled the ball 24 times. Tiki Barber had that issue. Tom Coughlin got there, taught him how to carry the football the right way. He wasn't a fumbler after that. Yeah, that's exact. That's that, that teaching. That's what it comes down to, that teaching. I'm point blank, period. All right, people, that's Sports Trap Radio for tonight. Ant Green, Brandon Pemberton, everybody at NGSCSports.com, for WarRoomSports.com. We out of here, man. We see y'all on Friday, Sports Trap TV, starting at about 8, 8.30. Y'all have a great night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.